Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. One of the most hotly anticipated movies of the summer was also one of the most hotly anticipated movies of last year, thanks to the pandemic. That movie is now coming out, and it is called Zola, from filmmaker Janixa Bravo. I'd call it partly a story of friendship, but that's a little like calling Taxi Driver a story about transportation. Zola follows Zola, a Detroit waitress and dancer played by Taylor Page, as she goes along with her brand new friend Stephanie on a trip to Tampa, Florida. Stephanie, played by Riley Keough, says the plan is to make some money stripping, but things get increasingly messy and shady and dangerous. It's a comedy with a crazy energy that crashes into bleaker moments as Zola tries to keep a cool head in Stephanie's world of pimps, gangsters, and nincompoops. Bravo brings a sense of vibrant visual invention and careful tonal modulation to the movie, adapting the unpredictable story and its complicated and thorny gender and racial dynamics from what was originally a Twitter thread. Zola is already one of my favorite movies of the year, and Bravo is a dazzling and extremely funny filmmaker I can't wait to see more movies from. I was delighted to talk with her about how it feels to see the movie finally out in the world, her directorial decisions, and her next project, about a book editor and writer who's a compulsive scammer. Zola opens June 30th. It must have been a, sort of a strange year as a filmmaker. What has it been like having this film kind of in suspended animation in a way? You know, it's, I think if we talked a month ago, the answer would be a little bit different because now its release feels so close and I can feel it in myself that I'm actually now moving towards what a postmortem feels like. And I was in the ellipsis, right? I've been in the dot, dot, dot for 16 months and that feels or looks like, you know, it's waiting for Godot. I, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm in purgatory. It's no exit, right? It, it's right. maybe more like no exit than waiting for Godot. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think in waiting for Godot, there's maybe a little more hope. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in no exit, like at least from the outside, we know where they are and eventually it becomes clear to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's this, um, you know, hell is other people, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, now it's near. I can I can almost smell it, right? We're like on the precipice. I think I'm also afraid to voice any kind of excitement. You know, I have some kind of anxiety that if I look too excited, then it won't come. You don't want another pandemic to break out or something It's another year. Or there's a meteor headed towards Earth, you know, <laughs> 36 hours before the uh, release date. Yeah, yeah. I was reading, you know, already a couple of interviews and something you said I thought was really interesting that, you know, you're looking forward to having the movie out in the world and this movie is like a version of yourself and you're sort of, you're ready to go on to another thing. I, I'm curious what, what, you, what you mean by that. You know, it's so funny. Sometimes I'll be talking to somebody and they'll quote something back to me that I've said and I'll have no memory of it or, but I, I try to remember or I'm trying to recall where I must have been, where that is how I was looking at that. Mm -hmm. um, right. I'm not entirely sure what I meant by the movie being some version of myself. I mean, I think all the work that I've been able to direct, e even in the TV space, feels a little bit of feels a little bit like my DNA, right? I mean, the mm -hmm. movies that I've made two features, I made six or seven short films. They all feel like these houses that I've built, and inside of those houses 
uh, there's some of myself, you know, I leave mm -hmm. some of myself inside of them. And so I think that there is at every stage of making, again, I've only made two features. So mm -hmm. I, I'll talk to you maybe after my third one and, and maybe I won't think this, but at any, at every stage, there seems to be some lesson or lessons and, and there is that final lesson that comes once the work has left your body. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm having, I've been having a kind of arrested development because I haven't been able to be on the other side of, of that final step. And it's not so much that it's an end. I actually feel it looks like a beginning. And mm -hmm. so I am waiting for that. You know, what, what is the other side hold? Yeah. And it's not like jobs or money or opportunity necessarily. That stuff could be there, sure. Mm -hmm. But it's, well, who am I now that it's left me, right? Who, mm -hmm. who am I now that it's left my body? Because in some way, um, you know, it feels almost tumorous. And I know that's negative, but it feels <laughs> like I'm holding this growth. And so right. once... Once it is surgically removed, who am I after that? <laughs> right. <laughs> so sort of the alien, the alien view of, of, of filmmaking. I'm here for vivid imagery, yeah. <laughs> so I hope you're up for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, good, good. <laughs> um, I mean, speaking of, of, of vivid imagery, I mean, how did you set out, you know, if we can sort of go back in time with Zola, how did you set out to visualize a movie that was told in the beats of a Twitter thread just because it's so dense. It sort of struck me as, you know, like there's like every single tweet has so much. How do you translate that into images? How do you decide how much to include, how much not? I, my initial image, uh, so I spent a few months trying to get this movie once uh, it had had a previous director before me and then that director had stepped down and I went on this few month long audition process of sorts to get it. And, and in that in that window, I started to put together the images, uh, or not the images, I started to put together images that felt like character, costume, um, you know, the architectural design, interiors, uh, hair, uh, lighting, uh, the list goes on. I'm not remembering words, but things like that. Yeah. And the one image that I feel was my sort of umbrella piece is uh, this painting by Hieronymus Bosch uh, called The Garden of Earthly Delights. And I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of getting yeah, to see it. It's insane. I, <laughs> oh my gosh, so you've been to El Prado. Yeah. It's radical. You know, I, I lived in Spain for a semester. I lived in Madrid for a semester uh, abroad when I, I don't know, in the fall of 2002 when I was at NYU. And I had this really fantastic art class where every Thursday we got to go to the Prado and we moved through the museum, but I fell in love with this piece and would visit it every time we went, you know, either at the beginning of my class or at the end of the class, I wanted to take this time with it. And I don't know what it was about it, but it just really spoke to me. And, and when it came time to kind of putting Zola together, I find myself going back to this image because I felt the tweets read like a pretty solid outline for mm -hmm. a script. There was a very, to me, clear first, second, and third act. And that first act, which happens at home in Detroit, has an ease about it. There's a, there's something almost placid about it, right? And there's this like hunger for adventure. 
Um, I, I think the movie, in a way, has a kind of Wizard of Oz quality. Mm -hmm. And that is to say, you know, home is kind of black and white. And then and then once you're on the road to adventure, uh, suddenly color is saturated and there is just more chaos and more information. Things are just right. every edge is super busy. And so that's your second act. Um, and then that third act in um, in our world, you're introducing, you know, hell, you're introducing blackness, like you've transitioned from Earth to like the demon side <laughs> and that painting as a triptych, that first panel is heaven, that second panel is earth, and that third panel is hell. And when I looked at her tweets and divided them into a triptych, that was how I saw it. Mm -hmm. And so that piece had been used as inspiration across the board. It was what my composer had, my cinematographer had, my production designer, uh, even editorially, I, I gave it to Joy McMillan and was like, this is the, this is our world, right? This is how we're, we move further and further away from heaven and get deeper into, you know, hell. Yeah, yeah. That's something that's really special about the movie for me is that it, you know, it has this mix of outrageous and comic often in the same moment. How did you figure out the uh, remove to have from the material? How close do you want the viewer to get to the material? I think there's a version of this movie that has a lot of like kind of absurd cuts, you know, and like, you know, record scratch kind of moments. And this movie doesn't really do that, you know? I mean, it has funny moments, but it doesn't take you out of it. I think part of that actually is, is Taylor Page's performance because she's sort of like this rock um, this reality check on it. Um, so I don't know. I wonder if you could kind of talk about finding the right distance or closeness to the material and, and also, you know, how you kind of worked on Taylor Page's character with her and, and how that character evolved. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she's our center, right? She's very much the heart. Uh, I think this is such a great question. And I... This is maybe my first time answering it, and I think I think it is a really great question. So I'm, I'm prefacing by saying, I don't know if I'm going to answer it, great, but here's my take on that. Mm -hmm. So the Twitter, the, the experience of the Twitter feed or the Twitter thread um, is super electric. And it, if you saw it on the day, I saw it on the day, but not live. I, I saw it at the bottom of that day once it had all existed. And there was a kind of, theatrical experience about it and when I say there's a theatrical experience you have uh you know someone on a stage in a spotlight tweeting mm. and then you have an audience engaging with them and so the thread on top of the retweets on top of like people kind of injecting themselves into it is a part of the whole experience of the thread and when I met Asia King the real Zola when we when we went through the story I found out that she had written three versions of it. This was the third draft. Her first draft she wrote on Tumblr. The second draft she'd written on Twitter. And the third, which was the one I got to see and a lot of us got to see is the, the one, the, the, final, the final rewrite, so to speak. And the first was, uh, she'd just come out. She'd just gotten out of this trip and uh, was still freshly traumatized and it read much more bleak. And then the second one is somewhere between the first and the third product. And then the third is a bit more uproarious. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my approach, I was thinking, you know, when a character is narrating, there is this sense that things worked out. There is this sense that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there there is another side for them. And so mm -hmm. I thought that, like, I kind of wanted to be able to 
you he, I'm not using the narration so much as wrap up or so much in the past tense. I wanted to use narration kind of in a live tense of sorts and wanted the story to feel a bit more like, even though someone was telling it to us and that was clear, we were being presented with a package that how we were moving through it was as if we were there. And, and Taylor's performance, her centeredness is mm -hmm. how the narrator tells the story, but actually injects themselves to the events, right? And so oftentimes photographically even, she is just to the left or just to the right of like the mania, right? All of the sort of uh, the unraveling. Um, and even if she's in the middle of it, uh, she is moving the least and everything around her is untethered while she feels very tethered. And in terms of like approach to the performance, we talked about, I, I felt the piece was a comedy. I felt in a lot of ways it was a classic comedy. I think of myself as a comedy director first mm -hmm. and foremost. And so I feel her and Riley were this kind of classic, you know, comedy duo or two-hander, you know, one's the straight man, one's the clown. So. Mm -hmm. Taylor is our straight man and Riley is the clown or the buffoon or the menace and and where the humor shines is when those things bump into each other. And that actually makes me think this is sort of a small question, but you know, when Riley's character is giving her version of the events, which is absolutely hilarious, it almost seems at one point that she almost breaks. It's, it's so like ridiculous something she's saying. And she probably does. I mean, I mean I wouldn't say that she breaks exactly, but there is an inherent performance about it, right? You hear someone call action, you hear the cut, you see the the film reel spool out. So it's meant to feel a bit staged yes. and heightened. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Yeah, it's all part of the... It's, Bre it's a Brechtian moment, yeah. if you will. <laughs> yes. I went to theater school, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's something else I wanted to ask about. Uh, since you co-wrote uh, with Jeremy O'Harris on this, what was the process there? I mean, what how, how did you kind of fuse your ideas together? So when we came to it, I was so grateful that, you know, A24 and Killer all co-signed on Jeremy. Um, there had been a short list of people I wanted to collaborate with, and, and he was one of those folks, but he was the, um, I guess, the greenest. At the time, um, he had only had one play and he was going to college. He was literally like, he got into Yale. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so there wasn't like a ton to reference in terms of what he was going to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And I feel grateful because everyone just trusted me, right? Um, I mean, I don't know if they like wholeheartedly trusted me, but they did. Something about it felt right. And so when he came on board, we had this really tight window we both felt we had this tight window because he was going to college and I felt the big sister in me was thinking you can't be writing a movie while you're at school uh, <laughs> nobody yeah. writes a movie while they're in college um you gotta focus so, on your studies <laughs> yeah you've got to focus on your studies and so um so we had this tight window in which to basically break it mm -hmm. and and do a, a kind of nasty first pass and then I just needed it to get to a place where I could then spend this time uh, excavating my director's pass, right? So mm -hmm. we had a few months, I think about three or four months that we worked on it. We did the first pass and we just kept going back to the source material. I mean, we're both mm -hmm. theater kids through and through. 
And I told Jeremy, you know, treat this like you would if we were adapting Chekhov or Ibsen or Bogus Wilson or Wayne Hansberry. Like we would continue to go back to the source material and treat the material like it was sacred. And so we kind of needed to just transfer what we would, what we were trained to do in the theater, transfer mm -hmm. it here. Um, and, and that, that wasn't hard for us because I mean, Jeremy was the first to say this to me that he felt the piece was kind of like Homer's the Odyssey, you know, mm. and the internet had also coined it the Thodyssey. <laughs> and, and um, so there was this epic, great poem. And so how would we adapt that? And, right. and the idea was, I think also I kept thinking like people, when you fall in love with the source material and then you go to the movie and you think, well, where's that? Or why did they leave this out? And so I wanted really to include everything if we could, you know, if it got in the way of, of the story or the intention, um, then I was willing to sacrifice it. But for the most part, almost everything is in there. I think the last six or seven tweets are not included. And those tweets to me are kind of an epilogue anyways. Um, and then inside of the rest of the material, there's only one thing that I felt strongly about not including because it was a little bit too severe for my mm. adaptation. Okay. I, I think I might be able to guess which, <laughs> which thing. Well, let was. me see. Let me see. Guess it. Uh, well, I, this kind of, I want to say like, uh, dominance demonstration uh, yes good exactly yeah. it just was too much you yeah, know it's on like screen. the yeah. the coleman character having sex with the riley character in front of everyone and i right. but what what i did was i deduced i just i did the theater i did an more of an acting exercise mm -hmm. like well what is the what is how does one express dominance and what is at the right. core of dominance right I don't have a penis, so I'm not like sure what like men and their penises are interested in engaging in for like power play. Right. But I actually feel like when you own someone, owning their heart mm -hmm. is more relevant than owning their vagina. You know, <laughs> like right. I just think yeah. owning someone's heart is more material, it's whereas total. like owning someone's like genitalia feels a little bit disposable to be frank mm -hmm. and so that was what that was for me like a true dominance was to own someone's heart yes yeah i that's that's interesting yeah i, I see see that and also I, I just think the whatever my thesis point is in the film not that i know what it is necessarily but whatever yeah. my thesis is that doesn't fit my thesis right like that just right. is uh it's too crass and i think it's a it, it's a more pleasurable read than it is in practice. Yeah. And I mean, it's also, it, there's a certain spectacle to that, that the way the movie like slowly gets bleaker and bleaker, it, it kind of, <laughs> it, get, it gets, I mean, it would be like almost sensational in, in a, in a uh, yeah, a way that I, I, just, I can see wouldn't quite fit the way the movie runs and, and works. It, just going back to how you visualize things. And uh, I was really struck again, just by the colors in the film and um, how everything really pops in a beautiful way. I mean, you actually, you shot it on, on 16 millimeter, right? We did. I'm, I mean, can you believe it? <laughs> um, there are so many wins to making the movie and that one's so far away. So I like sometimes forget that that happened because I shot the movie in 2018, right? And it's 2021 now. So I'm forgetting sure. that there's a many months long process leading up to advocating to shoot on film. 
Um, so I'm just kind of like, yeah, of course we shall have felt that. No, 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 no. I know it's a big deal. I know it's a big deal because when I think about making other work, it's a part of, it's a conversation, right? The idea of shooting on film is a conversation. And, uh, I just thought the world is really vulnerable or there are a lot of aspects of the world that are super vulnerable and the women have to be vulnerable, even if they're not entirely nude, but we're seeing so much of their bodies and film is just so generous. Film is so mm -hmm. generous to skin and and it is so kind um and that patina over the whole movie also i feel speaks to what i was saying before about like what what is my past or interpretation of the movie where it's you're very much watching a story that is being told to you right and i thought so much about well how is zola presenting the film to me as audience and i like the idea of her tying it in the bow i like the idea of like vamping everything injecting everything to like a plus 10 right you know even down to how they're dressed it's like so theatrical it's so absurd I think it might even land surreal but the the trauma that she has processed right when I guess I'm thinking about I've done versions of this and um, my writing partner Brett Geltman has made fun of me for this where uh, we used to be together and we would be an example is like you know we're at a dinner and something happens and then I am later retelling the story mm -hmm. and he was there and he feels that I have recast the whole story that it wasn't exactly like that but he recognizes the version I'm telling is funnier um <laughs> or has like more peaks of drama and the closer we got with each other and just like that we're just family forever he'll point out that it didn't happen that way but it seems so clear to me that it did because I feel it that way yeah. and so I thought that that there's something to the story that feels like that a bit right and I, I think that she has recast the narrative and I think it's I don't begrudge that she probably painted a better version of herself and so I thought why not just paint a better version of the whole thing why not just yeah. like paint this thing over the whole movie that kind of justifies how she got there right mm -hmm. and that's something I wanted to say which is that the movie felt like almost like a of a secret story I was in I mean other than the fact that it had been tweeted to the whole world <laughs> it feels like a story that you know girlfriends might tell each other of something they got through <laughs> you know what I mean absolutely it has that intimacy the the humor the outrageousness the sadness it's all wrapped together um I did want to ask about Florida have you been to Florida I have I mean I've been to probably like boring parts of Florida that uh, I've never been to a strip club for one thing wait ever in your life no, I haven't. Should I should I do something about that? No, 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 I love that. <laughs> I had never been to a strip club either. And oh, okay, so many people okay. looked at me like I had not existed or because I had never, that's just not, that's not my, that's not my scene. That's not my crowd. Not that's my, my hang. I, yeah. yeah, it's just not my hang. I also think that it'd probably be different now, but I was always... I always thought that I would just be such a downbeat at a strip club because I would look at someone too deeply into their eyes and be like, you don't have to do this. And no one's asking for that. Like nobody wants a girl being like, hey, you don't need to be here. Or like, can we talk about like what the steps are to get you out of this? And by the way, that's not everyone's story, right? Like there's some people, as I learned, so as I learned from Asia that like, it, it wasn't fair to generalize that every woman that was doing sex work was doing it because of some tragedy that some women actually had this comfort with their sexuality and actually enjoyed that. And I, that had, you know, it just, it's not how I had been introduced to this space. 
before this, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just like, wow, you've never been to a strip club. <laughs> that just see, because I was, that was you. I was you. You're... I was you three years ago, my yeah. friend. That was my story. I'm different now. I'll, I'll work my way there. <laughs> you don't, you don't need it. I think you're fine. Okay. I think you're fine. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> But I mean, just thinking in terms of uh, the depiction of Florida, and I mean, what what did you want to do? Because it's a, it's a, it's kind of looms large in people's imagination. I I love Florida, and I don't I don't know it super well. In the '80s, my parents had a timeshare in Orlando, and uh, we had friends in Miami for much of my youth, and always visited Miami off and on, like mm-hmm. through the eighty '80s to '90s. Um, and we shot this in Tampa. Shooting on film, like getting to shoot in Tampa was a win. Uh, mm-hmm. t- Tampa didn't have a tax incentive. I think they did have a small tax incentive. You had to apply for it and send them your script. And we lost it once oh. they read our script. Our <laughs> script was, it wasn't it for them. It, we weren't worth that 10% or 20%. So we didn't end up getting the tax incentive, which was a bummer because we we're a little movie and could have really used it. But the way you know in the twitter thread basically they just go to tampa and and in a way i felt tampa loomed large even though she didn't continue to tell you florida or didn't like she doesn't keep saying florida or calling to florida but it felt like it has this third panel of hieronymus bosch quality right it is it is it's panel three you know like it's totally (laughs) panel three politics right and um and i think that's why it's kind of sexy to me and i found that in the three months that i lived there i'd never been anywhere where daytime also kind of scared me or spooked me like Mm. walking around in bright daylight i was also just like I don't know, like shit's just about to turn up around here. It feels like, like the vibes got is like real off and I don't know what that is, uh-huh. um, but it was dangerous. Right. And I think that like, we couldn't really replicate that. Like the place had to do it. And yes, there are a lot of interiors in the movie. There's actually not that much outside, but even those interiors speak to that ecosystem you know we couldn't do it in LA we couldn't do it in Louisiana or Arizona like it just wasn't going to be the same maybe we could have done it in Vegas because Vegas probably also has a similar like panel three Sodom and Gomorrah you know it feels (laughs) biblical there it has a biblical quality yeah Florida does loom large it's well it's the the tapestry it's very much part of our tapestry and I uh I think it's you know the fifth character the sixth character it's very much an aspect of it also I guess like Florida feels sort of like an uber America Mm -hmm. um one of the things the movie is talking about maybe not explicitly is that what happens to these two women you know they're ostensibly sold into sex slavery or they're ostensibly participating in sex slavery right or some version of sex slavery um sex work that they have not willingly signed up for it is happening next to us, right? Like it, it could be our neighbor. It doesn't have to just be these women born into these unfortunate circumstances. Right. And Florida feels like a place that has a lot of forgotten people in it, but it's not even, I, you know, I think Florida is sort of a placeholder for America actually. And, you know, it's Florida because that's what it was in the story and to be able to go there and like actually be in those spaces that she went to felt really special to us. Mm-hmm. But I feel it becomes almost a placeholder for the country. Yeah, I know. It's almost like it's a, a laboratory for some what's coming up next in America. Don't, don't know what's going to happen next. Correct. 
Um, I guess I would just ask a couple more questions. You're allowed. <laughs> and one is just about how you're working. Upcoming project is ad- adapting a New Yorker article about an, a novelist. Uh, I, I wonder if there's anything you can tell me about that or what kind of what stage that's in or... It is like early, early baby. It's not even, (laughs) is it crawling? I don't even think it's crawling yet. I mean, there is a first draft, but it's for a series. It would be for a series. So Mm -hmm. a first draft of an episode one of six to eight episodes. So I I think we're still in infancy. It's definitely left my body. I have (laughs) have birthed it. Um, I'm writing it with uh, one, a co-writer, my one of my oldest friends, um, his name is Brian Savelson. Um, we met sophomore year of college doing an acting scene together um, from A Few Good Men. And here we are. We've just really grown since that moment. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> but there isn't much to share because it's so early. It's sure. so early. I actually have like some discomfort around um I recently looked myself up on IMDb out of a curiosity of like what order some credit was in and um not because I just love checking out my star meter no I really was just (laughs) like what order is this credit in and Uh um and when I looked I saw that this project was on there and it was so distressing to me because I'm like but we haven't even sold it yet like Uh this was there's we're in a business that will make an announcement for something that IP that you've bought that you're not going to make for a decade. And that feels like kind of loopy a little bit because yeah. right? it doesn't really exist. And what if nobody buys it? Right. <laughs> it's possible that no one will buy it. Right. And it'll, it just will sort of, you know, die, die on my bookshelf. But um, yes. So I am adapting an article, a New Yorker article, and hopefully it will have legs. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel pretty confident that's going to that's gonna come. I'm going to call you. I'm going to call you. We'll see. I'm going to call you. <laughs> no, I, I just, it also got me thinking, like, um, I know you probably hate if people try to, like, generalize about any any part of, part of your work. But, I mean, just the idea of uh, the deception involved and, and kind of reinvention involved. And, and, you know, some of that goes on in Zola in, in the sense that, you know, Riley's character is, she hasn't quite like unified all the parts of herself. She's like presenting different things. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a really sexy way to describe her. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to steal that from you. She hasn't unified all the parts of herself. Yeah. So, and then consequently, that means she's kind of presenting different parts to different people, which not that there has to be a connection between those things, but somehow that, that idea of like reinvention seems like an interesting idea. I don't know. I, I, with anything that I'm picking to work on, it's always, it's character first, world second. Mm -hmm. And that character, which if we get to make this project, Jake Gyllenhaal will be playing, Mm -hmm. um, reminds me so much of my stepfather. Um, My stepfather was a pathological liar. He passed away earlier this year, actually from complications of COVID, but he was a pathological liar. And I came across the article when it was, I think the month that came out in the New Yorker and Ian Parker who wrote it actually happens to also be at UTA. So I just found out, I think I found out right before it came out, my reps just sent it to me and thought, you love liars. And I was like, Oh my God, I do. You're right. (laughs) And it was an opportunity for me to get closer to my stepfather. Actually. I, the, the first man I ever fell in love with was my stepfather who happened to be a pathological liar um, who had disappointed me for a lot of my, you know, a lot of my breathing life. And so I thought it was a way to get inside of him a little bit more mm-hmm. and to, 
empathize or sympathize with what brought him there. Yeah. Wow. I was trying to bring you down. I was to bring you down. <laughs> no. And hopefully your next question is going to bring you up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I just wanted to absorb all that. Uh, yeah, my, my, my last question is kind of the title of the podcast is The Last Thing I Saw. So I was curious, what was the last movie that you watched? Oh my gosh. Um, I really wanted this to be such a good answer. I really, <laughs> cause I knew that I was like, I know. And I've been watching so, I've been watching so much television. Television is just so easy right now. Right. Sure, yeah. And, um, I've really been getting into season five of law and order. Uh, <laughs> it's Sam Watterson's first season on the show. Oh, it's just delicious. Uh, but film wise, I saw three movies in the last few days, and um, so I'm just going to say all three of them. Yeah. And, and uh, two of them are rewatches. I saw Natural Born Killers, uh, Minnie oh. and Moskowitz, and 12 Angry Men, which I'd never seen. Oh, wow, yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is a great movie. <laughs> um, that's one of those movies I've lied about watching. I just never saw it. And I don't, you know, it's just easier to like watch things these days. Or rather I should say, when I lied about watching this movie, mm -hmm. I was in my 20s and didn't, I was like, where am I getting this? I don't know where to get it. I, I yeah. don't think I live near a Kim's video. I just was yeah. like, I don't know where to, I just, I just pretend I watched it. And I had enough of a sense of what the world of 12 Angry Men yeah. was that I could be like, <laughs> The performances. I mean, the men, right? I mean, all one room. Oh my God. And like, it was fine. No one cared enough to ask right. to probe further so I could get away with it. And um, and I have Turner Classic movies playing all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and literally, if you're at my house, it'll just be on. And I, I think it, people find it a little bit odd. It's more my underscore of my music in a way. Yeah. And so it just was on one night it was starting i missed actually the first five minutes of it mm -hmm. and uh i watched it all the way through and i was like oh hell's bells <laughs> yeah and it's, it's so intense just being in, in that that room you know and, and fail safe was you know another oh, like i've got to see that i'm gonna write that down a lot i mean a lot of it in like closed rooms and because it's like nuclear apocalypse looming it's also really in intense um but yeah 12 angry men i mean you grew up in new york right i did i moved to new york when i was a teenager and i grew up in panama that's where my, my parents are both panamanian mm -hmm. so i moved to the states in 92 93 um and lived there for Till I was 28. I like, I can't do the math on that. So I'm just going to say <laughs> till I was 28 and then I moved to LA where, which is where I am now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious what, what part, where, where in New York? Yeah. I, my parents live in Crown Heights. Um, they, they're on the border of Crown Heights, Lefferts Garden. So they're right by the Book and Botanic Gardens. Mm -hmm. And then I went to high school at Midwood, which is next to Brooklyn College. I went to NYU. And then when I went to NYU, I left Brooklyn and did dorm life and lived all around the city. Mm -hmm. And then when I left home, my first, the first neighborhood I lived in independently of my parents was uh, Greenpoint and then Williamsburg. And I remember when I was moving to those neighborhoods, because I moved to New York and like I said, 1993, this is like a cab drivers being ripped out of their cars era of right. New York. <laughs> and so, and, and in Williamsburg, you know, that wasn't yeah. uh, a neighborhood white people lived in, to be blunt, right? So when I was moving there, my parents were just like, what is going to happen to you? And I was like, no, mom, white people are getting off the train at Bedford <laughs> Avenue, I'm telling you. And they were, my parents were so confused. They were like, it's just not possible. <laughs> and uh, somehow white people living somewhere was an indication that it was okay for me to live there. 
um, that I wouldn't be murdered. And, um, and then when they saw where I was living, they were like, oh yeah, there are whites here. Okay. I get it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I, I, I grew up in New York, so I'm always, um, all right. Well, thank you. Thank you so, so much for this. Thank you so much, Unixa, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, wonderful to talk to you again. Uh, congratulations on the film, and I can't wait for people to see it. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Bye. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.